2: so you can vote for Mr. Rhythm but will you get Mr. Rhythm that's not really the question we're asking today uh, the question we're asking today and it's something i think you know maybe you're not in, maybe maybe it's not in the forefront of your consciousness but there you might have this idea that wow it seems like most people support some kind of reproductive choice or some kind of better gun laws and and when you read polling you might see that too that maybe there's 60 65% for uh, support for something like that so then, like, why doesn't it happen? <laughs> um, not an unreasonable question for you to ask, but we'll try to give you some reasonable answers. Uh, a little later in the show, we'll talk about the Supreme Court specifically. The Supreme Court, of course, is designed not to be a weather vane. Um, on the other hand, increasingly within the last 10, 15, 20 years, it's also been designed to be impervious <laughs> to the will of the people and pretty much anything else impervious to the will of the people and to reason. Let's put it that way. And towards the end, we'll talk very specifically about how certain kinds of issue polling works or doesn't work. But we're going to begin with one of our favorite guests uh, on any topic uh, in this general ballpark, and that would be Jennifer Deneen, an associate professor in residence in the School of Public Policy at the University of Connecticut. She's also associate director of UConn's Center for Advanced Research Methods and Scholarship in Gun Injury uh, Prevention. Jennifer Denine, it's been a while. It's been a minute. Welcome back to the show.
3: It sure has, but it's great to be back, Colin. Thanks for having me.
2: So as we begin to kind of tease apart this idea, I guess we have to sort of look at different strands that we're teasing apart. And, and maybe the first one is the question of whether there's a, even a should here. Government should be responsive to public opinion. That's not necessarily priced in, right? Right.
3: It's not priced in and I'm not sure that it is always in our best interest. I mean, certainly government should be aware of public opinion and government should consider public opinion. But I think we can find as many policy areas where maybe following the majority hasn't served us well or wouldn't serve us well as we can in cases where we would like to see it reflected in, in policy.
2: Yeah. I keep going back to, I'm pretty sure it's in Plato's Republic, the the whole idea of the boat, you know, that de- democracies in which people participate on a more or less equal footing are really good in certain circumstances. But you wouldn't want to sail a boat that way, because if everybody gets to vote on what the boat does next, you're going to wind up on the rocks. There's got to be a captain. The captain's right. got to decide. There
3: should be a captain of the ship. Yeah. And I think that part of what's in your statement is the implication that we're all on equal footing mm-hmm. right that that we all have equal access to having our opinion heard that even just talking about public opinion and how we capture it and how we reflect it are we talking about opinion polls are we talking about voting are we talking about other expressions of public opinion that involve communications and protests and and those things all have implications in terms of access to information access to resources and access to political power. So I think that's the other thing we need to consider um, is that sometimes public opinion isn't really reflecting everybody.
2: Right. And, and if we're talking about polling, I mean, we have to remind people of some of the things that we that you and I have talked about in the past and lots of other people talk about as well. If we're talking about opinion polling. I mean, the first thing we've got to say is, don't show me one poll, show me a trend line. Uh, I mean, one poll on one day just tells you basically how things are that day. But if there's a significant trend line, and, and you know, with the two issues that I cited, you know way more about this than I do, but with reproductive choice uh, and, and gun laws, you know, you could sort of see pretty consistent public opinion support for at least somewhat improved gun laws uh, and at least some kind of, of affirmation of reproductive choice. So, so is it fair looking at those things? And if we see significant trend lines that are maybe in the 60s or so, is it fair to say, well, so how come? I mean, or, you know, just to even go to one of your two titles here, we saw the Sandy Hook parents go to Congress. You know, there was obviously in Sandy Hook, uh, after Sandy Hook, a real tidal wave uh, of a sense. Of, Boy, we got to do something. And sure. you know, members of Congress wouldn't even meet with them. They were like, turn, turn around in the hallway right. and run away from them. So, so what about right. that?
3: So, yes, I think it's absolutely fair to say that opinion has been consistent and and pretty steady over a very long period of time. So it's enduring and it's it's large. It's not just a it's not a slim majority that that favor reproductive choice rights or um, secure firearm storage, for example, Mm -hmm. or background checks are specific gun policy areas that show we have. Vast majorities of Americans supporting them. I think what we're seeing here is the the play of two other aspects or, or components of public opinion, the intensity of the opinion. So how strongly people feel about that and the importance or the salience of the opinion, how important it is to their vote choice. So um, I'm doing some research with Professor Carrie Racian who is also in the School of Public Policy and at the Arm Center. She's the director of the Arm Center. And we were interested in, you know, lots of people may say these issues are important, but how important are they on their vote choice? right? It's one thing for me to strongly agree with a survey question about the importance of an issue or to rate something as very important. It's another thing for that to be what we would call a deal breaker issue, right? That I absolutely cannot support a candidate who differs from me here. And what we see is that even in policy areas with high support, so gun laws and abortion specifically we asked about in this survey, That salience that this is a deal breaker issue for me is not the same for all voters. And politicians know that, right? And their job, in addition to legislating and representing, only happens if they can get reelected. So, for example, we're seeing that Democratic voters are more salient when it comes to abortion is more salient for them in the issue that they're making decisions about in this midterm. Conversely, we're seeing that Republican voters are somewhat more salient or committed to gun laws as the issue that's directing their vote this midterm.
2: Right. And, and so and that can vary over time, too, because, I mean, if you go, go back to the reproductive choice issue, I mean, for a certain percentage of Republicans, they sincerely believe that abortion is murder. And if you think abortion is murder, you're going to have a, a, a pretty strong opinion. And, and in some electoral cycles, presumably that is a deal breaker, a deal breaker in a way that, that it might not be uh, for a Democrat in certain cycles.
3: Sure, and, and the converse of that can work as as well. If I'm somebody who cares significantly about reproductive choice and I'm concerned that it's going to be taken away based on the consequences of an election, I may be more likely to elevate that in importance. And if I'm someone who is very concerned about my gun um, privileges and rights being restricted legally, I may elevate that above other things. So we may also be concerned or motivated by what we're scared to lose.
2: Of course, the other question is, one thing we know in polling is how you ask the question uh, is really important. Uh, and so, you know, for example, people will support the death penalty, but if you ask the question, you know, if you include lifetime with no possibility of parole in the question, suddenly that really strong salient, as you would say, support for the the death penalty may go down. And I think it cuts a lot of different ways, too. I mean, if you ask people, do they want health care reform? Well, they don't really know what that is and maybe they don't want it and maybe they think it's, you know, crypto-socialism or something. If you say, do, sure. you, want, <laughs> do you want a system where people can't be bankrupted by their medical bills or denied coverage because of pre-existing conditions, they're probably more likely to say yes because you've made it specific.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you made the point earlier about not looking at one poll or one point in time. And I think now you're making the point that it's also not about one question. And we see this with immigration policy. Right. Mm -hmm. People will push back on um, concerns or policy related to open borders, especially our border in the south policies related to illegal immigration, but if you ask Americans about their preferences when it comes, for example, to paths to citizenship, we see high supports in those policy arenas. So the specifics, the particular type of policy can all make a great difference. And so sometimes the disconnect is not quite as stark as it seems when we ask about the policy in abstract.
2: When the disconnect is stark, uh, when we start to ask ourselves, well, why, well, why can't I run through the halls of Congress waving my Gallup trend lines, you know, and say, <laughs> "You have to do this"? Well, part of the answer is money, and money is not an answer that is completely undivorced for the, from the structure of, of American political process. Uh, I mean, if you're going to say that money is speech uh, and that corporations are people, uh, right away, you've got a problem. You've got a problem that may outweigh public opinion.
3: Right. And I think that that's a reason that we see, um, you know, in, in my world, we'll talk about that as a different type of public opinion, right? We might talk about elite opinion, and we're thinking about interest groups there, maybe, and people with significant money and access to power. And so that's another reason we might see a disconnect sometimes between what we're seeing in the polls and what gets legislated is that the incentives aren't always aligned for those two things. And so the polls may be picking up, in some ways, opinion of those who don't have that kind of access to run through the halls waving the polls. I love that image, by the way. Thank you.
2: <laughs> so, um and I mean, another part of this, and it's a somewhat elitist argument, but maybe one of the reasons that government is structured the way that it is, with senators having six-year terms and things like that, is that... You know, you could make the case that maybe public opinion shouldn't drive public policy because public opinion isn't always very well informed when we start asking questions. And it turns out only 47 percent of Americans can name all three branches of government uh, or uh, when asked unprompted to name the protections specified by the First Amendment. You know, they can only come up with a few of them or none of them. You know, I mean, a, a citizenry that's not particularly well-informed, doesn't have an understanding of process process and hasn't looked at the issues at a fly spec level, may not be the best source uh, of public policy.
3: Right. Well, and I think, you know, maybe um, that's not, I don't know that the citizens are, I'm agreeing with you, but maybe not for the same reasons, because I don't know that the citizenry can be as informed as you need to be on some of these highly technical policy issues. I'm thinking about communications. I'm thinking about defense. I'm thinking about agriculture, things that we can't all know enough about. It's, I mean, it's impossible for us to pay our bills and live our lives and clean our houses and care for our children and know what we would need to know to make agriculture policy. Yeah. And so um, I think that citizens need to know, and I can't recall um, if you're going to be talking to Scott Keeter at some point. We are, yeah. Yes. So Scott, I think, will argue, and he has so well, that citizens need to know enough information to access the systems, to have input where where it's... Um possible, and, and he'll say this much better than I, but they actually don't need to know all of that nitty-gritty specific information to have a sense of what their core values are and what's important to them. And I think that's what government needs to know when making the policy. But I agree that citizens should not necessarily, majority opinion should not drive policy. That would not have served us well in school desegregation. It would not have served us well um, in the right to vote, right, it, mm-hmm. for women and people of color and non-property-owning men. We can go back through history, and there's a number of places where letting majority opinion rule might have driven us um, – even more off track
2: right in, in many ways we value and valorize politicians who are willing to step forward courageously and defy public opinion and say i'm doing this because it's the right thing it's the right answer and, and there's also i mean jennifer we've just been through a pandemic and you know right. if we did it well you know masks kind of work but show of hands how many people want to wear them and then we based our public policy well we kind of actually did that actually. <laughs> but we but, actually did yeah. that i think
3: that's actually yeah. a reason you know we don't have time but another more than the um the disconnect between sometimes what we're seeing in the polls and the electoral outcomes, it is almost like this backlash against science and evidence in policy conversations. And I would say that's what should be driving the policy conversation more than the majority of the public, you know, 51% of the people may think something, but 49% may disagree. And that's still a chunk of our country. um, what we're looking for is policy that's informed by evidence and research and lots of experts, I think.
2: Right. And and the other part of this, and you've kind of alluded to this already, is that, I mean, another kind of fallacy is that people vote for candidates on, on their policy set, um, which is true in some instances. And there's certainly a lot of strategic voting. I mean, when you think about when you ask evangelicals, why they would vote for Trump when he's obviously a very profane and less than admirable person in some of the areas of morality. Maybe that has
3: to... not executed as well as, yeah. as they would like.
2: Right. Yes. But, you know, one of the answers was because we want Supreme Court justices who support our value sets, particularly around reproductive choice, and this is how we're going to get them. So so you sort of got that. But, I, I, you know, I was really struck by some of the reading that we did for this show, uh, a quote uh, that uh, about how people vote – kind of about identity as much as anything else, that, that in a way, you feel like a loser if your side—here's lo- the quote. Uh, it's from Lillian Mason, a political scientist yeah. and author of Uncivil Agreement, How Politics Became Our Identity. When we're voting, we're not just voting for a set of policies, but, f- but for what we think makes us Americans and who we are as a people. If our party loses the election, then all of these parts of us feel like losers. I think that rings really true.
3: I, I think there is definitely an aspect to that. And I also think that, you know, there's lots of on in that vein, there are these core values that Americans hold in terms of equality of opportunity and individualism and economic freedoms. And each side of the aisle balances those differently. And and voters often who do not have the time and energy and access to keep up with everything they need to keep up it, up with look at party as a cue to what they should do, and so I think you're right. I think it's not necessarily always policy driven, but more idea driven. In terms of I see this side as having a similar mix of values to me, to be more representative of what I want for this country. So I'm going with this side. Um, you know, it politics is a contest, and um, losing doesn't feel good to either side.
2: So. You know, with with young people, and you encounter young people a lot, you know, w- w- the first time that they vote in an election, a presidential election, and then they discover that the popular vote doesn't win, it, you know, and, and we should say that I think it's true that— after Bush forty one versus Dukakis in eighty eight, I think the Republicans have won the popular vote in the election one, the presidential election once, and that would have been 'oh four. Uh, mm-hmm. But obviously, they held the White House lots more times. And right. I think the first time you have to explain that to somebody who's eighteen or twenty or twenty two, you know, right. they they that really there's a there's a sense of loss, I think, and almost a kind of loss of innocence. Really? That's how it works? Um, and, and I wonder about that, too, the divorcing of the vote, not only from public policy, but from who occupies the White House. Um, that's, that can breed a kind of cynicism and defeatism that we don't want as part of our public discourse.
3: It certainly can. It certainly can. And I think getting into those conversations about how we ended up with the Electoral College and um, we often talk about uh, preventing you know mob rule or bad decision making on the you know the side of an uninformed or uneducated electorate those sort of legacy issues but there was also a certain amount of um the electoral college addressed the issue issue of population um slavery po- population differences based on slavery um and so it it is a mechanism so that certain states have more power in the electoral college than they would based on individual votes um and that's still the case right so california has you know 55 electoral votes i think and california has a population that i think equals like the 22 smallest states in the country mm-hmm. and if you totaled up all of their electoral college votes it's much more than um 55 had my notes before I don't know where I put them but it's maybe 84 or something I it's significant and so um it is a little bit uh hard to explain in a way that makes makes young people feel like democracy like that that particular piece of democracy is important to them. I would argue there's lots of ways where we need to exercise our citizenship, but I do think that that's an important way, and it's it's a hard case to make sometimes.
2: Right. So I, I apologize for uh, ending on a somewhat negative note, but uh, Jennifer, <laughs> Jennifer Deneen uh, is uh, one of our uh, favorite and most positive guests, associate professor in residence at the School of Public Policy at the University of Connecticut, associate director of UConn's Center for Advancing Research Methods Scholarship and Scholarship in Gun Injury Prevention. Thank you. We're going to segue from there to the Supreme Court, where there are some pretty major trust issues coming up these days. All right, what about those Supreme Court justices? Uh, There is a way in which they are almost poster children for that sense that the actions of government are diverging sharply from public opinion. Here to talk more about that is Maya Sen, a professor of public policy at Harvard University, whose research focuses on the Supreme Court and public opinion. Her newest book, The Judicial Tug of War, How Lawyers, Politicians and Ideological Incentives Shape the American Judiciary. So welcome to our show. Uh, And where should we begin? I guess we should begin by acknowledging that the Supreme Court, maybe above all else, is structurally designed not to be a barometer, not to be a weather vane. So so why is why are we so uneasy about that divergence I talked about?
0: So hi there. Thank you so much for having me to talk about such an interesting and important topic. Um, You're totally right that by construction, the Supreme Court was designed to essentially be insulated from sort of the effects of public opinion, right, to be above the fray and to not be involved in politics. And that kind of myth has really persisted for a long time. Um, and I think now the view is a little different that people are starting to realize, I think uh, correctly, that the court is itself a product of our politics. So it is a political institution. It just happens to be much more insulated from kind of day-to-day political conflict by the fact that the justices are appointed to serve these lifetime terms. And so they don't stand for re-election. They don't have to campaign. Um, So they're insulated in that sense, but it could still be a problem if they get too far afield from where the American public is. So, you know, one example is in the 1960s, when the Supreme Court was at the forefront of calling for desegregation in schools. um, And that was something that really wasn't resonant with where, you know, the public opinion was at the time, particularly in the South. And there was a lot of resistance to the movement to desegregate, you know, cases like Brown against Board were hugely unpopular. And there's this entire term like the Southern resistance that arose up to um, uh, fight essentially against court-ordered integration. So that's one example where um, the Supreme Court being really out of step with public opinion can lead to potential conflicts. That the issue that we have now is not so much that the court is... Um, you know, protecting the rights of minorities in a way that's not very popular, but it's actually kind of the opposite, which is that the court is really out of step in terms of being too far to the right. Um, And that's sort of where we find ourselves today. So it's a little bit different, but I think there's some cautionary notes Um, drawing from our own past.
2: Right. So you've got uh, in the previous session a decision about reproductive choice, Dobbs. You've got a decision on gun laws. Uh, You've got a a decision on the ability to enforce environmental protection regs. Um, These are all probably um, examples of things that diverge from mainstream public opinion. But is part of the problem, Maya, that for a long time, I think there was a sense when you when you appointed a Supreme Court justice, if you were the president, you rolled the dice a little bit, and you might get a David Souter, in other words, a Republican appointment who, you know, who followed his his principles and often wound up on the opposite side from Republican preferences. In Harry Blackmun before that, probably even more progressive, uh, but I believe a Nixon appointment. So. And and that the Federalist Society and some other forces within the conservative movement said, let's just not ever let that happen again. Let's get justices who there's just no possibility that they're going to go off the rails uh, and and go in a different direction.
0: Yeah, that's that's certainly part of it. Um, I think in the last 15 or 20 years, those sorts of nominees, the ones who are sort of truly open-minded, who would be flexible in adapting to different circumstances or persuadable, um i think those those nominees are much rarer now um i think uh they're they're much rarer because those nominees weren't super palatable to extreme partisans right so the best example i can give you of someone like that was i don't know if your listeners will remember but george w bush tried to appoint uh this woman called harriet Harriet Myers. myers yeah uh yeah and and eventually the reason why she was withdrawn was not because she was people thought she was going to be too conservative. It was actually the opposite. It was that the re- members of the Republican Party weren't sure that she would be conservative enough. Um, and in particular on the issue of abortion. And so her name was eventually withdrawn and then she was replaced um, in the nomination by John Roberts. And then that moved forward and then he became chief justice, et cetera, et cetera. We know what happened. But she was kind of a good case of this where she was just viewed by members of the president's own party as not being a reliable enough vote on certain issues that were really important to the core Republican Party constituency. Right. Um, and- so, yeah, I, I think that's absolutely something that's happened you know, in the last 20, 25 years.
2: I want to go back to one part of your earlier comments and you said that. In some sense, the Supreme Court is part of the political process or is to some degree an expression of the political process. And that would obviously include the fact that they would be appointed by a, quote unquote, popularly elected president. But I'll go back to what I was just saying to Jennifer Denine that since 1988 – I think the Republicans have won the popular vote in a presidential election exactly yeah, once. That's right. Uh, but they, that was 04. But they, they occupy the White House. They support they appoint a lot of Supreme Court justices. So if we're starting to get a little uneasy about the way in which there is a divergence, it, I assume that's part of it. Though ultimately we have people who are not really winners of the, pop, the, the popular vote appointing Supreme Court justices who then serve right. in, until the, uh, the next ice
0: age. That's right. I mean, I I think that's only part of it, though. And here's what I'll say. So the court has nine members. That's a small group of people, and an unexpected death here or a retirement here timed at exactly the right time. Just one or two things can happen that knock the Supreme Court pretty far to the left or or to the right. So what happened in the last five years were three things. This is three things that got us to where we are today. One is that Antonin Scalia, who's a conservative firebrand, He dies unexpectedly in 2016, Uh, you know, he I think he was on a hunting trip and he had a heart attack. Mm -hmm. Right. And Barack Obama tried to nominate uh, Merrick Garland to replace him. That would have flipped a seat that would have gone from a Republican held seat to a a Democratic seat. But as we know, Republicans succeeded in not holding confirmation hearings on Garland. And so uh, Scalia was actually replaced by a conservative Neil Gorsuch in January of 2017. So that's one thing, a, a failure to flip a seat by the Democrats. The second thing that happened was anthony kennedy retired in 2018 out at of at, we would call the strategic retirement he retired very strategically such that he was replaced by 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 someone who was like-minded with a with a president who's a co-partisan a, a member of his own party so kennedy retires and is replaced by another conservative brett kavanaugh brett kavanaugh is actually more conservative than anthony kennedy so that solidifies conservative control of a 5-4 majority conservative And then the thing that really flips the script and actually leads us to where we are today was in September of 2020, uh, well into the pandemic when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. Mm -hmm. Um, And she'd been sick for a while, so we can't say that it was unexpected, but I don't think people anticipated that it would happen at that moment. And she was replaced, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is a solid liberal and she was replaced by Amy Coney Barrett, who's quite conservative. And when Coney Barrett comes onto the bench, that really solidifies a very strong six to three conservative majority. That's a, essentially a super majority. And what that means is that, you know, uh, thinking about uh, the court and its dynamics, it means that the conservatives have a lot of votes and they can even afford to lose a vote and still have a majority. So they can really um, uh, like exercise, I guess, their privilege as a supermajority by ruling in quite conservative directions. And this is what we saw with the Dobbs opinion, actually, the the case that overturned Roe versus Wade. Uh, John Roberts was actually did not want to overturn Roe. He wanted to sort of, you know, take this um, middle ground approach uh, in sustaining the Alabama abortion restriction, the Mississippi abortion restriction. Excuse me. But he didn't want to go all out to overturn Roe. But because. There were five other people who are more conservative than him. They actually had the votes to do that. So, uh, going back to your question, I think it's important to recognize that you know it's kind of a series of idiosyncratic small events that can tip the court pretty quickly in one direction or another.
2: Of course, a lot of it depends when you start the narrative. There are some people who would be listening to this conversation and would say, well, no, you should start the conversation with Bork because Bork is kind of the first time uh, a nominee is essentially turned away because of his opinions. That there's a a sense uh, from that particular nomination process that. Congress or the Senate was beginning to consider, yeah. you know, what somebody believed and whether that was palatable or sufficiently mainstream. And, and at least for conservatives, that's the apple, the idenic apple, right? That's right, that's the moment right. everything all went to hell, and so you you had to play hardball. Right.
0: right. I mean, that's one way to look at it. Uh, you know, the fear I think that some people have is that it seems unlikely that a Republican Senate would ever confirm a Democratic nominee again, and. Mm-hmm. Um, by you know, flipping the script also, it's unlikely what a Democratic Senate would do with a Republican appointment. That's quite conservative. I, I don't have the answers to that because we're not in that situation just yet. We no. might be after the midterms, um, but I think that's a real fear that we might have to seats left open for long periods of time because the two parties just can't agree on anything anymore. You know, it, it, to, some are, to, to some degree, I think this really, um, you know, maybe the deeper underlying condition here is extreme party polarization. Right? As the parties are drifting farther and farther apart, it just becomes really hard to see that common ground anymore. And with something as politically contentious as a Supreme Court appointment, you're really going to see the clause come out. I
2: also feel as though, so I'm willing to bet that I'm older than you. Uh, and so <laughs> so i I grew up in a time when you didn't even necessarily know the sort of partisanship of of Supreme Court justices, and you didn't necessarily keep track of counting on your fingers who appointed whom and what that person was there for, almost 100 percent likely to do, that there really was this sense that they they looked at things case by case. It was an outcome driven. I may be idealizing all that. We may have idealized it at the time. That's really how we thought about it. And one Mm -hmm. of the things that your research indicates is people simply don't think about the court that way anymore.
0: Um, that's right, but but also one thing that's true is like we we might have wanted to think of the court that way. um, but it's always been the case that the the party of the the president who named a justice is like the most powerful predictor in how they're going to vote. Mm-hmm right? So Democrats will tend to vote in a more liberal, uh, excuse me, justices appointed by Democrats will tend to vote vote in a more liberal direction, and justices appointed by Republicans will tend to vote in a more conservative direction. What's changed, though? Things have changed. What's changed is that now there's less crossover voting. So now it's just, what we see is that the Republicans are just voting consistently as one block, and liberals are voting consistently consistently as one block, and there are just fewer people who are crossing over and voting with the other side. I mean, one of the few people who's who's doing it is John Roberts. Um, and and this is where his reputation perhaps undeserved, I don't know, some people disagree on this, but this is where sometimes he gets a reputation for being more moderate than the other conservatives on the court. Um, so I think things have changed. Uh, I think the, the polarization on the court is in quite sharp relief right now. Um, and I think that we're gonna see more of that in the years to come.
2: Right. I mean, w- in the case of Roberts, I think the argument is, well, if you keep moving to the right, pretty soon the middle of the field is what used to be the right. Um, that's right. And and so that's sort of why Roberts looks like a centrist or at least the most pliable person. That's right. That's uh, right.
0: That's know. right. The, the The person that we would consider the swing vote now, it used to be Roberts. But once Amy Coney Barrett joined the court, it shifted to the right again. And we would most people think it's probably like Brett Kavanaugh or Neil Gorsuch. I, I, we gener- we looked at this question specifically, and by one account, Neil Gorsuch is more conservative than 85 percent of Americans. Mm-hmm. So a pretty conservative, um, pivotal vote on the court right now.
2: So let me just ask one more thing, which is. Sure. You know, you talked about this kind of series of unfortunate events, the death of Ginsburg, the death of Scalia, the retirement uh, of Kennedy, all happening a certain way. One way to take that out of the equation would be to have term limits. Um, That's right. And so talk about that.
0: Yeah. So what term limits do and like I, I think they've gained a lot of traction for this for this reason and other reasons that I can talk about. But one thing term limits do is institute like a a fixed term right so each justice would join the court for like an 18 year limit term um and what that does is it removes the incentive for a justice to try to time their retirement with a like-minded president like you just can't when you're when your term limit is up you have to transition out right so you can't try to game it or try to time it such that you're replaced with someone who's like-minded um, and and that would actually go a long ways in terms of preventing the court from moving too sharply to the right or too sharply to the left, uh, because it reduces the incentive of justices to do that. Uh, the other thing that I think term limits uh, would do is it would reduce kind of the political gamesmanship around any one nomination. So right now, um, vacancies are so rare And they're so politically valuable to senators and to the president that they become really contentious um, and confirmation hearings become contentious and um, not really necessarily in an informative way but they they do become like political battles and having fixed term limits would mean that each president would get to to name you know two set two uh justices and if pr- each president got to do that, then it would just kind of lower the stakes for each nomination. Um, right. And I think that might be beneficial as well.
2: It might be beneficial. I mean, there's also a lot of unintended consequences. And one of the unintended consequences might be that Supreme Court nominations would be an even bigger political football than they are now. If you know that in the next term, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh both have to retire, uh, that that can be even more front and center as an electorate. We've got to win the White House because this is the year of blah, 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 and blah, blah, yeah. blah are retiring. So, yeah. so, so right away, it becomes even more politicized.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know if they could get more politicized than they are now. And I, will, I will add the caveat that I don't know if they would get more politicized For the republican party so uh, the republican party candidates are actually doing exactly what you just described yeah you know they're they're go like uh the republican candidate usually goes out and donald trump did this and actually actively campaigns on the sorts of candidates he or she would name to the supreme court right trump did this at almost every stump speech um by contrast democrats aren't really doing this so you know that might not necessarily that, that part of it might not necessarily be a, a bad thing.
2: <laughs> Maybe not. All right. Well, this has been fascinating. And thank you so much for being with us. Maya Sen is professor of public policy at Harvard University. Research focuses on the Supreme Court and public opinion. Her newest book, The Judicial Tug of War, How Lawyers, Politicians and Ideological Incentives Shape the American Judiciary.
0: Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. When you
3: find good people, a feeling for the hymn When you find good people, there's hymns to make good men out of our wild songs <laughs>
2: And we're back. Thanks to Dylan Rays. He's running the board right now. Uh, Thanks to Lily Tyson, senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show, for producing this episode. And Taylor Doyle uh, helped out with research. Uh, And now we are going to finish up the show talking very specifically about opinion research. So joining us is Scott Keeter, a senior survey advisor at the Pew Research Center. Welcome to our show. Well, thank you for having me, Colin. So the first question, I guess, is... You know, issue opinion research and candidate opinion research, they're kind of two different things. But I guess how two different things are are they? I mean, first of all, just in researching issues, let's say you're researching issues outside the context of an electoral contest. is Is it kind of a different animal when you're doing that, when you're just trying to get people to tell you what they think about things? Well, there are a number of things that
1: they have in common. The first one, and the most important in a lot of respects, is that you need to get a representative sample of whatever population you're trying to project to. In the case of elections, you're trying to project to the population of people who will actually vote. Um, In the case of issues, you may define your population as the general public, that is all all adults who are residing in uh, whatever your geography is. Um, the challenge in both of those is to somehow contact uh, and persuade a group of people who are representative of the, of this population you're interested in uh, to cooperate with you. And a lot of the focus on polling's problems in the past uh, several election cycles have, have really come down to problems with getting a representative sample, getting enough uh, Republicans or supporters of Donald Trump in um, in election polls. Um, issue polling is not immune to that. You're, we're trying to get the same people, basically, if we're trying to accurately describe uh, what the public thinks. And so there is that thing in common, but where they diverge is on that issue of who's going to vote. And so many polls uh, will start out with a general public sample and then narrow the sample down through the use of questions that are designed to figure out whether a person is going to vote or not. Unfortunately, more people say they're going to vote than actually will vote. So you have to bring in side evidence of some kind, either their indication of their kind of intensity of feeling or how closely they're following the campaign, whether they know where to vote, what their past voting history is. And all of that gets mixed up in a kind of uh, stew. Um, that maybe is a little more art than science to, to, to try to figure out who's going to show up. But then the final point I think of difference between issue polling and election polling is the, um, the 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 demand for absolute precision in election polling, particularly in a country that is as closely divided as the U.S. and in the jurisdictions where we're really interested, that tend to be uh, very divided. Um, there, There is an expectation that you can uh, come up with a poll that will forecast how the vote's going to break within a, a point or two or three, because that's what the margin may, may be in the election. And uh, modern polling, with all of the challenges that it faces, not to mention just the problems of sampling error, the just the randomness of the process, um, may simply not be up to that level of precision these days. But an error of two or three or four percentage points in a poll about issues is not likely to send you astray. If you're trying to figure out does a majority of the public disapprove of the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade, and you look across a number of polls and they all differ a little bit, but they all say, yes, a majority disapproves, you can be pretty confident that a majority of the public disapproves.
2: Yeah, and it goes back to what I was saying to Jennifer Denine at the beginning. You know, don't show me one poll. Show me a trend line. Show me you know how this issue plays out across some kind of uh, time frame. Um, so, but yeah, I want to go back, get back to what you've been alluding to all along, which is the increasing difficulty of of getting people to participate in polls and getting people to participate in polls who will be representative of the electorate or, or the people who participate, you know, significantly in other kinds of, of issues. And there's almost—I mean—it's sometimes referred to, the, to as the weirdness factor. Like people who answer polls at this point are weird, you know, <laughs> because they're willing to do something that most people are not willing to do. And if you're willing to do something that most people are not willing to do, in a sense, you're already unrepresentative.
1: Well, it's true. Um, it, it's true, at least as you as you spell it out. But the but the fact is, it turns out that the people that uh, most well-designed polls are able to um, obtain look a lot like the rest of the public. Now, the question always is, well, how do you know that? And ironically, in the past, we would say we knew that because our election polls were accurate. And now that people say, well, your election polls aren't accurate, um, you're you're not getting that accurate model of the population anymore. Um, we either have to say, well, we are within a few percentage points, which is kind of unsatisfying to critics, or you have to look at other evidence. And so one of the things we've done here at Pew Research Center is we have done a number of surveys using our regular methods where we ask people a lot of questions that are also asked by the federal government on their very high response rate census type surveys. And we show that for the vast majority of those, and there are some exceptions, but for the vast majority of those, our samples look like the public. Um, and even on one one measure that um, is, sort of touches on the political world, but isn't an opinion, and that is the share of the public that has gotten a COVID vaccination, public opinion polls by Pew Research Center and a number of other or, or peer organizations of ours are remarkably accurate. And we know how politically charged the the question of getting COVID vaccinations has been. The fact that we can peg that number within a point or two suggests that the people we're getting are not all that weird, at least on the kinds of things that we're interested in.
2: Right. So there's also the whole question of why people vote the way they vote. Uh, And it could be argued that people don't necessarily vote on a policy set. But they might be driven by a particular policy. This voter might be, you know, the deal breaker might be some kind of sensible climate change policy. But for this voter over here, it's reproductive rights or it's inflation or it's. And so in terms of looking at that, how does Pew Pew and other pollsters must be someone interested in. Okay, so what are some issues that could conceivably change votes? What are some issues that so so you know, completely drive a voter's choice as to make it the choice?
1: There's a big debate in the political science world over whether issues really matter as much as um, we would like to think they do. I mean, our kind of classic theories of democracy suggest that policy attitudes should be determinative in elections. And uh, I think there's, there's evidence that policy attitudes matter, but there's also a lot of evidence that people are making their judgments on The basis of identity and um, uh, a sort of personal affinity affinity with candidates, or even if they don't like a candidate, they see the candidate as someone who fights for them. That seemed to be an asset that a lot of conservatives saw in uh, Donald Trump. But on the question of issues, pollsters have been worrying about this for a long time. And so you will see in almost any election poll, a set of questions that ask people, how important is X, Y, and Z issue. And um, they may pose the question as how important is it to your vote, which is asking the respondent to explicitly bring their voting frame of mind into it. Or they may simply be asking how important is this issue to you personally, not connected to the vote. And then you take a look at, at those issues and how closely they correlate with the choices that they're making. You look at those issues and you see, based on the positions that they take on those issues, whether they're voting for candidates that are actually consistent with their point of view. And the evidence for all of that is not surprising. People are, are in fact, voting mostly consistently with the, the way they think on issues. Uh, but there are some exceptions. I think one of the things that's happened in American politics, and you know, I think you've probably covered this earlier in the, in the show, is that the sorting by party has uh, proceeded to the point in the United States that there may be a lot of people who are simply not available uh, to vote for an alternative party uh, on the basis of some issue that they care about because they feel the necessity to stick with their team. And so you get some interesting distortions in there where people may not be voting consistent with their opinion on some issue that's important to them because they don't feel that overall they can afford to see their team lose uh, this election.
2: Yeah, I guess we're going to have to stop there. I, and this isn't really a Pew kind of question, but ultimately, maybe it depends on how we communicate uh, about participation in a democracy. If We valorize people who don't vote on a knee jerk basis, who consider wider questions, uh, wider sets of questions. If we, if we say that's a really good way to participate in your democracy as opposed to being a loyal Republican or a loyal Democrat, uh, maybe over the decades we'll get a little bit of change there. But um, that's a process. Uh, well, listen, Scott Keeter, great to talk to you. Senior Survey Advisor at Pew Research Center. Thanks to everybody who listened today. I should say, this is one of a whole bunch of shows that we're doing a little bit different from our typical menu because of this election season. So we've got a few more ahead and I hope you're enjoying them. With a to me. May-